0: Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. The podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host,
1: Jared Van Hees. Welcome back everybody to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host Jared Van Hees and thank you so much for tuning in to another great episode. Today we have something special for you guys. You know, Bow season is right around the corner, and this episode is mostly on mock scrapes and scrape hunting, what to do with scrapes in the deer woods. Uh, we are interviewing a friend of mine by the name of Jim Lombardi. Jim is a great dude. I've known him for a long time here in Michigan. He's a successful bow hunter, um, successful habitat manager, and scrape hunter for sure, so a couple things we talk about with Jim on this great episode. We talk about how to bring bucks to you with mock scrapes and scrapes in general. We talk about the infamous Mitch Rompola. You know, Mitch has uh, been claimed to have the world record whitetail. There's a lot of drama behind that. Jim actually uh, had talked to Mitch before, and Mitch has used a lot of the same tactics that Jim talks about here. In this podcast, we talk about the way deer can smell, you know, it's kind of in addition to the sound barrier episode we did, we talked a lot about how deer can hear, how that works um, in their head and, and how that can help us understand better how to hunt them and and scout for them once we understand their hearing. We talk about scent and how deer use their nose, how that can help us, you know, be better in the woods by understanding, you know, some more of their sense if you will um not only their sight but now their smell so we bust into the deer's nose we talk about hunting in michigan and ohio a lot uh, we talk about scent control for sure jim is a scent control nut as a lot of these guys are who consistently kill good deer with their bow and arrow um a lot of them are, are scent scent nuts scent freaks and uh it's really good informative conversation you guys are not going to be bored on this one it Is blew my mind on multiple occasions. Let's put it that way. So, Jim, thanks so much for coming on. Um, Sorry for the long, drawn-out intro there for you. Guys, we have – everything's available at habitatpodcast.com if you're a new listener. All of our podcast episodes are up there. Uh, We have some brand-new t-shirts up there. They say Habitat Manager on the front of them, and they have a really badass uh, American flag logo Slash Habitat Podcast logo across the entire back of the shirt. So check those out under the Gear tab at habitatpodcast.com. We also have, uh, you know, some some hats up there, some blog posts, and our land plan service is all up there. We're currently not taking any more land plans on until 2021, and so. But if you want to get one in and book your time for 2021, now would be a great time to do that. Check the land plan section out at habitatpodcast.com. Uh, This episode is brought to you by Killer Food Plots. We still have time to get out there and plant food plots, guys. Um, I was having some drought issues on mine, actually, but now we've been getting some steady rain, finally. So I took some lethal winter oats, I took some rye and some wheat, and I pounded it out onto onto the food plots before a good rain about a week and a half ago. I'm excited to get down there and see how those are going. I am still going to hit grains one more time. So check all the different seed options out at KillerFoodPlots.com. You get free shipping and 10% off when you use the code HP10%. HP10%. Everything is at KillerFoodPlots.com. We've had a lot of listeners use their seeds so far this year. Uh, John Lito out east, um, Brian Doobie here in Michigan. This, this stuff's coming up, and it looks great. So thank you guys for checking Killer Food Plots out and for you know, helping the podcast out with that. Uh, next this episode is brought to you by PackerMax Call to Packers as well. Once you spread that seed, you gotta pack it down, guys. Um, something that is very important to me is getting that firm seed bed, that seed to soil contact. I can't stress it enough. Uh, Lincoln's got these great portable cultivackers towed behind the ATV, towed behind the tractor. You know, you can empty the water, sand out of them when you're done, and hang them on the wall in your pole barn. That's what I do with mine. Uh, I'm done with using mine for the for the fall, and you know, I think this is year four I've been using that cultivator, packer, packer Max, and I recommend you guys check them out. Packermax.com, you can get $25 off the Packer of your choice by using the code HPC, Habitat Podcast, HPC at checkout. So thanks for checking out Packermax. Lincoln's a great dude and uh, has a great product. He's going gangbusters over there, so be sure to get yours in. I want to thank HuntWise, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, Stony Creek Realty, and Sound Barrier Hunting, also for their support on the show. And without further ado, guys, I'm excited to to get you the episode. Jim Lombardi, Mock Scrapes, and Scrape Hunting. Here we go. All right, guys, welcome back. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have Brian hall the greatest co-host in the world, on the line tonight. What's going on, Brian? (laughs)
2: That's very flattering. Thank you, brother. Doing well.
1: How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, you know, it's, it's a decent little Wednesday, so happy to have you on. Thanks for coming on, and as always. And then we have our special guest tonight, Mr. Jim Lombardi. How are you doing tonight, Jim?
3: Great. Uh, glad to be here talking to you guys. Yeah, it only
1: took us 90-something episodes to get you on here. you believe that?
3: Nice. I know I follow a lot of your episodes, and they're extremely informing. Oh,
1: I I appreciate that. I think uh, I think after we had a couple of beers the other day, or a week or two ago, or whatever, when we were talking about mock scrapes, I'm like, how have we not talked about this already? Like, so I, I wanted to get you on, and the the focus tonight is uh, is mock scrapes. So appreciate you hopping on. Um, why don't you kick this off with telling everybody, you know, who you are, where you're from, what you do for a living, and kind of your history of uh, you know growing up hunting and working on habitat and that sort of thing for us, if you don't mind.
3: Yeah, no problem. Hey, my name is Jim Lombardi. I'm definitely an avid outdoorsman. <clears throat> I'm not just a hunter um, and a fisherman, but I love to do everything outside. I'm a professional snow ski instructor. I love to water ski. I like to hike, sail, fish, mountain bike, anything in the outdoors, any weather. So that's that's my background. Um, my Hunting history basically started with my <clears throat> grandfather, and basically we just deer hunted and, and rabbit hunted, and I would say that the, the greatest lesson that he taught me was to hunt the wind. When he hunted, and even when he hunted with me when I was young, he always smoked, and um, he would say to me, I watch the woods everywhere my smoke doesn't go. And it's kind of interesting because little did I know that this lesson would be the premise of my hunting career and the products that I would eventually promote. You know, it was about scent, right? Um, So it's interesting that he was an old-timer, but the most important thing that that he taught me was to play the wind, right? So... That's as far that's super interesting. Keep going. Yeah, as far as just um how I got engaged with hunting, I mean i I would never say that uh, I was you know in this long history of family, like the Benoises and grew up, you know, tracking deer or anything like that. i I basically hunted like everybody else. I hunted funnels, I hunted field edges. I looked for buck sign, primarily rubs. I had very little knowledge of scrapes at the time. Uh, and it wasn't until I was in my, like, early 20s and I started working at GM where I started talking to different guys about hunting. And I read a book from the Doherty Brothers from New York. Have you guys ever read uh Growing Big? I've heard of it. It's it's a great book. It was it was basically developed uh, well over 20 years ago, and it was the first I would say publication about growing you know planting food plots and what to do with habitat. And these two brothers basically took an area in New York and they convinced their neighbors that to let the spikes and the four points go, and then they also started teaching their neighbors and the people in that area how to put in food plots and, you know, basically how to condition their properties to their benefit. And within a few years, everybody in the area was shooting big bucks. And now that area is one of the biggest buck areas in New York. So just a couple of guys started out like you guys, right, talking about Habitat, and they created a culture. So that was basically the first time I really had an interest in learning about deer behavior and how important habitat and food plots were. Um, After that, I learned a little bit from Steve Gruber, who was the original owner of Frigid Forage up in Minnesota, and he turned me on to different forages before they were in in a bag. You know, we see the same forages now and multiple food plot companies using them. And then um, I went to a few seminars. Uh, I went to a Scott Bishop seminar. I believe he recently passed away. But he took a 20-acre field and turned it into the most, the thickest, mo- like a deer mecca in 10 years by creating, by uh, planting fast-growing trees and grasses and things like that. So that was one of the best seminars I've ever been to. And then lastly, I learned from my friends, uh, Todd Colick and, and Brian who, uh, Malone, who both took seminars from Tony LaPrat and Jeff Sturgis, on um, like hinge cutting and bedding areas, funnel creations and things like that. So that's really my background in habitat improvement.
1: That's that's a pretty decent network of guys to kind of come up knowing, learning from, etc. I know uh, you're right on on Scott Bishop, uh he did pass away. I never met him or, or went to his property, but anybody um who's a habitat guy in Michigan, I'm sure is familiar with his speckled alders and and his 20-acre field that that you mentioned there and um You live about 20 minutes north of me. Where did Scott live? Where was that property at?
3: He was in Chesoning.
1: Chesoning. Okay, so a little uh, further north?
3: Yeah, a little bit further north, just kind of by um, Montrose. And, like, I was there for a full day, and he showed us pictures of literally that it was a field. And, I mean, 20 acres. When you think about 20 acres, that's not a ton of property. And he was... He was harvesting giant bucks, killing big bucks every year off his property because that's where they wanted to live. So it was just a a wealth of knowledge, and I've used some of the things from him uh, to this day to benefit me. And, um, you know, he was a really smart guy. It's too bad he passed away. Oh,
1: for sure, for sure. I know um, Jim Browker and... Jake Ealinger and all the main habitat dudes here in Michigan—they all spent time up there doing those property tours with him as well. And, and like you said, Tony Lapret—I haven't heard that name in a while—but that was—he was a big deal for a long time. Um, probably still is, for all I know. Um, I know that uh, you know, you're—have you always hunted Michigan? Like, have you been a Michigan
3: resident your whole life? Yeah, I've been a Michigan resident my whole life. Mostly hunting. Northern Michigan, like uh, Curran and Blenny, uh, you know, Harbor Springs a little bit. I never really got into hunting the south until I was, you know, in my 20s. I started hunting Jackson, and I moved to Fenton, so I was hunting Genesee County, Livingston County, you know, all farmland bucks, and applying a completely different knowledge of hunting. Up north, we hunted over bait piles. Uh, we hunted some cedar swamps. Hunting the farmland was a, like a whole new adventure, you know?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's definitely <laughs> different hunting up there. It's kind of like when you go from Michigan down to southern Ohio. It's kind of back into the hill country again, less farm fields, except the deer hunting is a lot better.
3: <laughs> right,
4: Exactly. Uh-huh. All right, so I guess
1: transition from from where we're at in your in your hunting and habitat timeline. I know you've been working on leases ever since I've known you I've probably known you now well, I've been selling for about probably eight years and I think I've met you about so probably about eight years um How long have you been like leasing and and whatnot and hunting some properties that you've helped set up around the Fenton area for would you say?
3: So I've, I've had the, a current lease for about 24 years. Oh, wow. So when I first moved up to this area, I, I leased from a guy who still had the same lease. I've had several other leases since then. I lost a lease this year. Um, a guy bought a piece of property that was for sale, and I killed a 153-inch giant there last year. So it's it's – and we had four shooters still on the property, so he's – He's going to make out pretty good this year uh, from our management. But basically, uh, I've been leasing property around here for a long time, since the early 90s, and, uh, you know, I, again, I've learned a lot on, on what to do, how to take up even when you don't own the property, you're kind of limited to what you can hinge cut and things like that. So... You know, one of the things I did last year for Habitat that's huge is I brought in a guy to my linen property that wanted to buy all the cottonwoods. So nobody wants to buy a cottonwood except for guys that make pallets.
1: I was going to say, so okay.
3: basically the property was mostly cottonwoods. There's some cherries and oaks and, and hardwoods, but the cottonwoods basically took the woods over. And I basically put my landowner and this guy together, and he cut down 180 cottonwoods. And a lot of them were five, six feet in diameter. He only wow. gave the landowner owner about 15000 bucks, But it was 15000 bucks he didn't have. And what he did was created the best habitat. Yeah. With all the tops that came off those, he just basically... Uh, went in there with a skid steer and created all these new runs through there with all this basically crap everywhere with trees, right? And we never saw the amount of deer like we did last year and big bucks. They came in there immediately and started eating those tops. And the other thing it did is it opened up the canopy so much that everything else grew up, so so my property that was basically an open woods is now so thick you can barely get through it. And you know what deer like, right? <laughs> perfect. Oh, perfect,
1: perfect. I just actually walked my my eight acres that got logged uh, over the last couple of weeks. I walked it for the first time yesterday with the logger to, to wrap things up. And you just explained pretty much what my woods looks like, and. I tell you what, it looks like a mess. It might turn some people off. Um, I was, I am absolutely jacked up. Like like you said, all that crap, that's all side cover. That's all, I mean, woody brows for a little while while it's still alive, um, possibly. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, cover everywhere. And cover, like you said about Scott Bishop's property, cover his king in a high-pressure state like Michigan, you know.
3: I actually took... So so I, I've i been hunting, you know, I, I bounce around, I, I saddle hunt, so I do bounce around on the property quite a bit, but we've had, you know, the guys I hunt with basically go back to the same stands year after year after year, and what I did this spring is I went in there and looked at how the topography changed with all the tops being down and how the, the road system was cut in there. I really couldn't do anything. Last year, because it, it, they just finished, like, by the fall. So now, I looked at it in the spring, and you the, the new runs and the new, um, you know, travel corridors are just unbelievable. So I literally am moving and adding about six stands that we've never even hunted these areas before, but now we have access to them and it's just going to be like hunting a brand-new property 25 years later.
2: How long have you been saddle hunting, Jim?
3: I've been saddle hunting. Um, The Eberharts turned me on to that. Um, John is a good friend of mine and his son. Um, They turned Chris Eberhart. They both write books, and I don't know if you've been involved with uh, their Hunting tactics, but uh, pretty very brilliant guy, for sure. And I started, I would, I want to say maybe 18 years ago, and I still hunt out of the same saddle I bought 18 years ago.
2: Yeah, Jared and I recently got into saddle hunting the last couple of years. You uh, have any pointers for us or and for the listeners that some do's and don'ts maybe?
3: Well. Typically, you know, I do, I learn from the the Eberhardt, so basically, um, I look for places where you really can't get a stand in, or, um, you know, the reason why I saddle hunt is because I need to get away, I don't want to be, you know, this guy that says I'm a professional hunter, but, you know, a lot of the guys I hunt with don't take... The precautions I take, they sure. won't have a problem with hunting out of the same stand three days in a row. So what I do is I basically take their behavior, and I take my saddle, and I I have spots. I probably have 25 setups on 90 acres that are not that are downwind of where my my friends hunt. Does that make sense? (laughs) It does. It does. Basically, I'm using Hopefully, they don't listen to this
1: podcast. (laughs) Yeah,
3: it it basically, I'm using them to my advantage, okay? Instead of them screwing up my hunting, I basically, uh, like, it's funny. We'll meet at the truck, and they're like, oh, you're hunting out of your saddle? And I'm like, yeah, you know, where are you hunting? And they tell me. Okay, and then that's how I pick my spots, right? So (laughs) I would say for those guys that are willing to take the saddle plunge, you know, you're probably dealing with the same thing I've dealt with. You know, I I love my buddies. I love hunting with them, but they they can screw up a piece of property pretty quick. And um, my lesson would be take advantage of that by using a saddle. Set up. Set up multiple spots um, that you can get into quickly with some sticks. Uh, most of my saddle spots have the screw-in steps at the top in the, in the tree, so I'm not dealing with that. So I leave the top four steps in, and I bring two sticks with me, which is easy to carry on my back, in my backpack, and that gets me up 10 feet. Eight to ten feet, and then my all my um, screw-in steps are in those trees. Right. So.
2: Yeah, that's something I'm doing this year too. Is, is uh, not only just clearing some branches and getting shooting lanes ready and, and prepping a tree for a saddle. I'm actually putting some sticks in them also, just so they're ready for me to go up. And one less thing I got to do.
3: Right. Yeah. I try not to put. Um, you know, screwing steps in, like, a good tree, like an oak or something like that, but, um, sure. you know, I have steps that have been in some of these trees that are, I can't even use them now, they're, they're kind of grown into the trees, yeah. so, you know, I don't 100% recommend that if you can take them down at the end of each year, it's just, I've been hunting this property for so long that, you know, I've kept a lot of them in the trees that I've used, so.
4: Yeah,
2: there's something to be said for staying mobile. I mean, a lot of guys you talk to, like your your buddies you were mentioning, that go to the same stand all the time, and they say, well, I didn't get busted by any deer. Well, you know, you might not have gotten busted by any in your 30 to 40 yards around you that you could see or hear, but, you know, the ones that are 80 yards out and smell you or see you moving around in that same stand all the time, that could be the ones that you're after, and then you're SOL when it comes to trying to Pursue
1: them. Yeah, Jim, exactly. that that remind, that just brought up a quick question. When you're hunting downwind to your your buddies, uh, how far are you going?
3: Um, we'll, we'll get into vanishing hunter, but okay. I am, okay. you know, I, I will go right to, like, a bedding edge, okay, where the deer are coming from or going to. Um, and I try to get in before my buddies, okay? And in the morning, I try to get in very early and let them, you know, affect the deer, let's put it that way. Um, And then, you know, I would say I try to be with 80 to 100 yards away during bow season and during gun season much further.
1: (laughs) Gotcha. Thanks. Perfect.
3: Yep. So we can talk a little bit about... um, Scrapes, is that what you wanted to talk about next? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, you know, I learned about mock scrapes from a couple of buddies of mine um, that I worked with at GM. And this was probably 25 years ago, okay? And I was shooting, you know, small eight points, and everybody thought I was just the just an awesome hunter, you know, you you shoot a buck every year. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, I, I really would like to shoot some more mature bucks. And that that's when I started researching other states. And I started talking to this guy, and he's like, wait, well, I just shot a, you know, 14-point this year, and last year I shot this buck. And I'm like, is this guy full of crap, or is this for real, right? So I started talking to him. And asking him what he does, and he basically said, I got a, a hold of this product, and I learned how to use this product, and he goes, I'm telling you, it's changed the way I've hunted forever. And I'm like, come on. You know, I really didn't believe in scents that much. I, I didn't use urines or anything at the time. So these guys basically said they were, use, they were making these mock scrapes and I knew very little about scrapes at the time. So I asked them to show me, and they did, and especially uh, this one guy, Brian Malone. I mean, he was shooting these bucks in St. Clair, like just outside of St. Clair Shores, like the city, giant bucks. And I said, are you baiting them? And he's, he's like, no, I'm basically making these scrapes, and I get six, seven, eight bucks that hit this scrape. During the daylight, and I'm like, I gotta learn how to do this. Well, learned from them, saw immediate success, and then that next fall. Um, so I learned from them actually late in the fall of the one year, and then the next fall I went to the Woods and Water, and the owner of this company called Hogs H A W G S Sense was there, and I I went to a seminar. And the guy was so informative where he he got into like the really scientific knowledge of of what um, deer behavior was. So when I listened to him talk about deer behavior and why and how he created this product, it totally like sank into me. I, I was just like, you know, now I understand why this stuff works because the other guys just showed me how to use it. They didn't explain to me why it does what it does. Okay? When Kevin gave the seminar, um, he basically hooked me immediately to the point where I eventually bought the company. I couldn't go in the woods without using these products. Period. So. I, when I was in a I was in a, a radio interview uh, and um, it was Mike Avery and Mike Avery said so so you're kind of like the Gillette guy and I said what do you mean he goes well the guy that owns Gillette he used the razor and it worked so good he bought the company <laughs> right <Wow>. and, <laughs> nice I and I said that. I go yeah well I kind of I, that guy probably had money. I didn't. I mean, I,
4: (laughs) I kind of,
3: um, came upon buying the company because of some tragic things that happened with Kevin Cray and his family and the, and the business. And it happened to be exactly the time where GM was laying off a ton of people. And I looked at my wife and I said, you know what, um, uh, you know, know, that your job isn't, you know, I, I have a four-year degree, I'm an engineer, and somebody can tap you on the shoulder and you don't have a job tomorrow, right? So they were struggling, and then I was also in a position where I wanted to look for something, and because I loved to hunt so much, it kind of fell together, and I ended up buying the company in 2009 when GM was basically going bankrupt, Right? So the stars kind of aligned. So if you want me to get into, you know, why these these mox grapes work, I'd like to really talk about why scents, specifically synthetic scents, work so well. Okay, a deer has. Well,
2: back up, back up real quick, Jim. I'm yeah, just go ahead. Curious, what what was so compelling in that seminar? that uh, was the light bulb moment for you that, that that put you in that position that you thought you had to become part
3: of this? So what was so compelling is his his story. So basically he was like a mad scientist. I, I actually raised my hand and said, what is your background? Are you a chemist? And he said, No, I'm a machinist. And I said, Well how how did you come upon designing something based on chemicals. And he said, I basically studied deer behavior, and he was a good friend of Mitch Rompola's, the guy that today still has the current world record. It's not recognized, but by far, Mitch Rompola is most likely the best deer hunter in the world. Okay? His knowledge of deer is uncanny because the guy and if Mitch is ever gonna listen to this he's kind of a whack okay he's so involved in what a deer does that he spends Kevin Cray said he spends 300 days a year in the woods studying a family of deer wow. okay so he he actually, I think I told um, Jared this: when when he decides what deer he's going to kill, when a deer is five and a half, he's reached his potential. And Mitch Rompola kills that deer of that year, which he will, okay, because he knows everything about that deer. When he does squeeze the trigger on that deer and he kills it, he actually goes in the morning. Because he feels like he killed one of his brothers. Now, that's a guy that you might want to learn about deer behavior from, right?
4: Sure, absolutely.
3: <laughs> little, wow. little crazy, but wow, that's who Kevin got involved with. And when it, when I say what was the light bulb, he he told me that he was going into the woods literally for years with different. Um, parts of these formulas, okay, and he was he was starting to see some progression. He was starting to see dear interest. But he said he, he made a change to it, and he had set a, basically a mason jar down on the ground, and it had spilled onto the outside of the jar. And he was going to look for where he was going to set up the scrape setup. up and he was maybe 30 yards away from the jar where he set that down and his rake and some other things. And when he turned around, there was a buck with his nose on the jar, right? Hmm. And he said, you know what, I, I, I think I've, I figured it out, right? And the buck was pushing the jar around and doing all kinds of stuff. So I guess what really turned me on to it is he didn't, like, just, throw something together and say, yeah, they're kind of interested. He developed this over years and found the key thing that just drove him nuts. So, any other questions about that?
4: No, that's interesting. I'm
2: glad you touched on that.
3: Yep. So, basically, Kevin spent some time with me teaching me about why a deer smells or uses their smells, okay um, in order to create hierarchy and to know you know everybody that's in their woods. okay So I'm just going to touch really quick on, on one thing. A deer has 200 up to 297 million olfactory scent receptors, okay? Um, a dog has 220 million scent receptors. And humans only have 5 million scent receptors. So 297 million scent receptors compared to R5. And the way I like to put that into perspective is when we smell vegetable soup, a deer takes that vegetable soup, And he smells each individual component separately. We smell soup. He smells carrots. He smells the barley. He smells every single item that's in that soup. Right. So that is so critical to how their behavior is. And they have a gland, an organ in their mouth, called a vamoronasal organ. If you open their mouth, it's like a um, diamond-shaped organ in the top of their mouth. And if, I know because you guys are both phenomenal hunters, you have seen a buck lip curling in the woods, right? For sure. And when, when they do that, what he's doing is he's breathing the air, breathing all the surrounding scents into his mouth, not just through his nose, but through the vomeronasal organ and he's breaking down all kinds of information, okay? So you guys know that, you know, everybody knows that a deer has forehead glands, they have preorbital glands, nasal glands, interdigital glands, and tarsal glands, right? And they even have metatarsal glands. All of those glands have um, a reason or basically... Are, are what the deer use to um, share who they are with the rest of the herd. And that's why mock scrapes work so well. Mock scrapes, primarily hogs or buck fever, as it's called today, they have a, a scent called forehead gland, and then they have something called pre-post and rut urines, Okay. And just to touch base on those products, and and there's other products out there that may be effective, I just know these work, and they work all the time. Um, And they work because they're synthetic, and they never spoil. I want to repeat that. So, synthetic products work because they don't spoil. And the reason why you use urine, and you put urine out, and it might spook a deer... Is because that urine has already broken down, and there's so much bacteria in it that the deer gets spooked by it. Now there's some great urine companies out there like Conquest. They're great friends of mine. I love EverCalm, and yeah. I do use I do use VS1 during the rut, but I use urines very very little. Okay, and the reason for it is. I can never 100% count that it's fresh. Even though Doug and Karen do everything they can do, um, their products are, are, in my opinion, the best urines on the market. Their EverCalm is, is a go-to for me. I, I love using EverCalm with our Vanishing Hunter product because you're going to put the odds in your favor of fooling a deer's nose. So, going back to mock grapes. Mock grapes, because they're fresh, they actually reactivate. Um, they're always, they don't break down. So, uh, pre post and forehead gland made by buck fever, originally hogs, the formulas actually crystallize in the ground and on the tree. And because they crystallize, they reactivate. With rain or moisture. So if you go and make a scrape, and I'll, I'll brief you on that, you, you know, a, a scrape tree. Obviously, the the overhanging branch we like to see, basically at head level of the deer, because that's where the deer is putting his forehead glands in the tree, his preorbital glands, you know, which are his tear ducts. He's rubbing that all over the tree to tell another buck who he is. So if the two of you and myself lived in the same woods and I'm the old guy and you and Jared's the kid, I would know that Jared is just a young punk running around in my woods by his smell. Very
1: accurate. Very accurate. Very accurate. Young punk by far.
3: Jared would know that I was just there by my smell. So, the hierarchy of a deer herd is created by the age of the, the herd and the, the specific sense of each individual deer. And the reason why a mock scrape works so well is you are putting, you're introducing a new deer to an area where these deer know where every other deer is in the area, right? Mm. So, you're basically saying there's an intruder, okay, and what does a dog do when there's a fire hydrant? When when there's a fire hydrant, he pees on it, and what does the next dog do? Same thing. He pees on it. Because what he's trying to do is overmark that dog's odor. A deer does the exact same thing. Okay, Hmm. a scrape is a social spot. It's a fire hydrant that's placed in the woods. And, you know, I can talk about where we're going to place a a mox grape, but the, the, the ideal thing is getting a new person in this deer habitat, this new deer, and these bucks wondering where he came from. Okay? Right. So... So, I I don't want to keep rattling on. Is there anything you have a question on regarding that?
2: Well, maybe just break it down, exactly what a mock scrape is. For some of our listeners who are maybe new to hunting, they don't really understand what scrapes are. Just break that down real quick for them.
3: Okay, so a scrape is basically a social spot for a buck to... uh, Basically, put his mark in an area. So, bucks right now are just coming out of velvet. Um, buddy of mine just posted a buck in with blood all over his antlers, uh, in Oklahoma. So, they're right now getting started to get out of velvet. When they're in velvet and they're in the summer, they are in bachelor groups. They're all hanging out. They're all buddies. Um, they're feeding in the same fields. They they can stand each other. When they start to lose their velvet, a lot is starting to happen. Their hormones are changing. And when they go hard-horned, they suddenly um, don't really have a tolerance for each other. So this is when they're basically establishing and setting up their, um, their hierarchy in order to breed does one to two to three months from now, okay so the the first thing they do with their with their antlers uh for the velvet is they make signposts or rubs, which you know most hunters see in the woods and understand what that is. when you see a rub line, that's a buck expressing that this is my territory, and he's not only is he rubbing the velvet off his um his antlers, but he's also uh, conditioning himself for upcoming for the upcoming rut. He's putting his scent all over that tree so that other bucks know that he's being more aggressive. So that's a, that's a rub. What a scrape does is that buck is going to uh, put his antlers and his orbital glands and his nasal glands in the tree, which tells a story about him. And then he's also going to dig underneath that tree with his, his front paws. He'll start to paw away the dirt. What that does is it, it, it exposes the earth, which by itself has a strong smell. And then what he does is he pees down the back of his legs down his tarsal glands, through his metatarsal glands, into his, and into the dirt. The reason why he's doing that is he's putting all his head scents in the tree that identify him, and now he's putting his, his urine and his tarsal smells into the dirt. So he's basically putting a stamp that says, this is me, and this is my spot. Now, what you'll get early in the year, is you'll get multiple bucks over marking as they're, they're trying to develop their hierarchy. Um, so did that kind of explain what a scrape is?
4: Absolutely. Thank
3: is you. Yep, definitely. Okay. So why does a mock scrape work, or why does pouring a synthetic scent in an existing scrape work. Like I said, what we're doing is we're trying to introduce a deer that they've never smelled before. So the forehead gland is basically a year-round scent, synthetic scent, that can be sprayed in a tree. And I have I've started scrapes as early as turkey season, okay? okay. I have many professional, very successful, successful hunters that run their scrape lines year-round. Now, they don't put the urine in the ground. They just keep the forehead gland in the tree because bucks, as well as does, will visit that spot and they'll, they'll smell that forehead gland in the tree and it becomes kind of like a social spot to say, you know, I was here today. When the bucks go into more, like this time of year, we're actually digging in the dirt and making scrapes. I made six scrapes the other day, and all of them were hit in the first day I made them. Okay? And it's just because the bucks now are on their feet, they're, even though they're together, they're, they're gonna start changing their, their habits. And, um, This is why we want to see, by making these mock scrapes, what the most, um, you know, some of the mock scrapes I make may never change in size. One of them may turn into the size of a a car hood because it's a super active scrape. And that's going to be the scrape that I'm going to focus my attention on.
4: So,
1: Jim, before... Uh, moving a little further, I have a quick question. When you're when you're making these scrapes, um, first of all, are you using any sort of specific tree branch? Are you bringing in an, an evergreen branch or a grapevine? And second of all, are you spraying any roundup on the ground or something to kill the vegetation to make it look like, you know, it's just straight dirt? Are you doing any of that or just hitting it with your products and moving on?
3: So, Tony Laprat um, used van, or used the the Buck Fever products, the Hogs products for years, and he always taught people to use Roundup to kill the grass where you wanted to make a scrape. Um, for me, I I don't like to introduce any chemicals to my wood line uh, to where I'm you know putting my scrapes other than the product. So I try to find um, a branch that, you know, I, that I don't use a specific tree. I do like grapevines, okay? So I guess my point is you can take a grapevine and you can establish where you want to put that scrape. If you have a food plot in the middle of the woods, let's call it a killing plot, And there's no tree to put a a scrape under. You can, and I've done this, I I cut down a tree, take a post hole digger, and put it in the hole. And then I actually tie a branch on with wire ties. And I will hang, go cut a nice fat piece of um, grapevine and hang it vertically down from that branch. And saturate it with, with forehead gland. And they'll murder it. Okay, when, when they're coming to that furred, that uh, food plot anyways, and they see that there's a, a, a signpost that they can manipulate, it, it's very effective.
4: So, so is there
3: a
1: certain t- size and diameter grapevine you like to use? I know Brian always sends me pictures saying his grapevine's bigger than mine, and I'm just curious if that's a big deal or not.
3: Yeah, that's funny. I, I like <laughs> one that's at least, you know, three quarters to an inch in diameter. And um mm-hmm. I actually take the forehead gland and I open the bottle and I soak it in the grape I I actually put the grapevine I try to get a grapevine that I can put right in the bottom. Nice. And what that does is it absorb, it just sucks all that material up in there, and they'll chew on that grapevine forever. You know, they okay. love it. Okay,
1: sorry sorry, getting off topic here. I, I, I wanted to ask a few of those questions, so thanks for diving in there. I know um you were getting into, like, All right, why should we make them, and where should we put them? Like, like, what are your thoughts on there? We covered what branches to use and vines and that sort of thing. I guess dive in the next step and give us some more of your secrets.
3: Well, one of the the things I definitely do is, for example, hunting farmland. If I have any overhanging branches that are bordering my neighbors, I cut them all down. Okay? I don't want my buck's. Um, working the edges of my properties where my neighbors have a bow shot or, you know, even a gunshot. So what I try to do is, you know, my one property basically has a 40-acre farm field, and I, there's five tree stands that border my property. So what I do is I take my steel 16-foot chainsaw and I cut – every possible branch off that edge.
1: Wow. Okay?
3: It sounds crazy, but if I didn't do that, they'd be scraping that edge. Yeah. Okay? And what I do is I put scrapes where I want them to be. I want my bucks to want to stay in my woods, away from my neighbors. I want them to overmark the scrapes where I put my stands that, you know, for the best wind conditions and everything else. So the beautiful thing about a mock scrape is, I like to say, you could put a, a fire hydrant in the woods exactly where you want it to be, and have bucks hunt you instead of you hunting them, right? I love
1: it. I freaking love so, it. Yeah, that would life
3: a lot easier, wouldn't it? It it really is. I mean, if you can if you can establish, you know, a scrape that's super active. And you have, you know, today it makes it so much easier. I mean, I started with Smart Scouter cameras literally when they came out. I can't even remember how long ago. that They were the size of a truck, and you put them on a tree, right? They had a giant battery that went in them. But it was the coolest thing in the world to see a scrape that I made, and it sent a picture to my computer, right? And... I would go out if a buck started hitting my scrape midday, and I'll talk about that. If I saw a dominant buck hitting my scrape midday, I would leave work, go out there, and put the rut formula on that scrape in the middle of the day. And the next day, I would be in that stand from morning till night. And I can't tell you how many times I killed the biggest buck On that property, whether it was a 110-inch deer or it was a 130-inch deer or whatever, I know he was the biggest buck on that property that year, right? And because when you tell that dominant buck that has now taken over that scrape, when I introduce the dominant buck, the rut formula, and I overmark him, he's going to visit that scrape all day long because he wants to know who's messing with him. So that's another, like, trick to the trade. Build your scrapes, watch them develop, and then when you start to see a specific buck taking that scrape over, that's when you want to overmark him because he already thinks he's the Mac Daddy, right? And now you're just going to piss him off. He's going to think you're a transient that's cruising looking for does, and he's not going to leave that scrape. I have video footage of a buck laying in a scrape for three days. Okay?
4: Three he, days.
3: Three days he was in the scrape, and I had the camera on video. And the unfortunate part about it is, opening day of gun season, I had to leave, which I never do, and I, because we had a big meeting with a customer that came to town, and my buddy killed that buck. Okay, it came right from, from my, where my scrape was. And I, when, he, when he shot it, and I got back at 3 o'clock, I said, did it have split brows? And he said, yes. And I said, I hate you. <laughs> okay, you killed the buck that's been bedded in my scrape for three days. Okay? Oh, my God. Yeah, so the bottom line is I can, myself and other guys that use this, religiously, like Troy Pottinger, who's killed the state record Idaho buck in the mountains, okay, where there isn't any funnels, he uses, he sets 65 cameras a year in the mountains on buck fever scrapes. He can't carry a bag, you know, 20 miles into the woods on the mountain of a bag of corn. He specifically only hunts scrapes. And year after year, he kills booners. Okay, on the product because what he's doing, he's conditioning the deer, he's learning their habits, and then he knows when to go in and kill them.
1: I think Troy just did a a Moss podcast recently with somebody. I meant to listen to it and I couldn't find it, but
3: yeah, and he's the Mountain Man. If you go a, to um, if you go to YouTube or any of his podcasts, he's um. Part of Whitetail, uh, not freaks. Whitetail, the the Anaclisto brother, you know, uh, Andre. Oh, the,
1: oh yeah, Low Wolf Custom Gear, uh, Whitetail Editions, yeah. Whitetail Editions.
3: Yeah, so Whitetail Addiction. he's part of that crew. He's turned Buck Fever on to all of them, and they they love it. I mean, there's there's a lot of big giant big buck hunters using Buck Fever. Every year we kill multiple booners last year there was a 213 inch buck killed in Missouri on it um, on a scrape so it's the product works if you have the patience to learn how to use it and and most importantly you're you don't go make a scrape after you just left the get the gas station okay we can talk about vanishing hunter in a minute and we can talk about scent control but it, the most important thing that people have to understand is they can't go buy a bottle of forehead gland and a bottle of pre-post, go out in the woods after they just pump gas, and put it in the tree and expect that scrape to be active. Okay. Okay? You have to eliminate your human odor in order to have a successful scrape. That's
1: a, that's a good point. It's a pretty common theme, too, among guys who, who kill mature deer. Like, scent uh, elimination is very important. Like, it's always, like, Eberhardt, for instance, you know, it's, it's top of the mind all the time for these guys. So that's
3: you, you, can't, you can't be in the woods without having control of your surroundings, whether that means you're always coming in, you know, downwind of the deer, Okay, that's one option. Number two is knowing how to be scent-free, okay? And I don't think anybody is as much of a scent-freak as I am, okay? I mean, I will not hunt unless I follow my protocol, okay? And I'll share that with you guys. It's very brief, okay? I won't go in and do a mock scrape unless I spray down with Vanishing Hunter, number one. I don't go in the woods without brushing my teeth and spraying my mouth out with Vanishing Hunter, okay? And I always use rubber boots. Sometimes I use rubber gloves, okay? If, for for example, I don't have time to go wash my hands and scrub my hands before I put Vanishing Hunter on, I'll use gloves and Vanishing Hunter, okay? That's a little over the top. Wouldn't you agree?
4: It's probably
1: way over the top compared to what most people do or almost all people do, for sure. Right. But the the details kill deer.
3: I I can give you an example, okay? I went to make scrapes for Will Primos on his property in, in Mississippi. It was 95 degrees. So Will Primos was there, Brad Ferris was there, his whole crew of guys, okay, and I got out of the car, out of the truck. You know, we all drove in trucks. And I started, I grabbed my Vanishing Hunter bottle. Well, you know that Primos has a scent eliminator, right? Yep. And Will Primos looks at me and he goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm getting rid of my scent. And he goes, well, we have a scent killer. And, and I said, yeah, I know, but I want something that works. And I said that to, him, to his face, right? <laughs> and all the other guys started cracking up. They're laughing their asses off. And I said, Will, would you, would you spray your product on your hands, okay, and in your mouth and go touch the overhanging branch that you're going to make a scrape with to break the branch with your bare hands with your product? And he goes, well, you're not supposed to spray it on your skin, first of all. And, I, I, and he said, second of all, no, I wouldn't. I said, well, I'm going to make scrapes for you today, and you're going to have pictures on your cameras tonight. And of the same branch that I handled with my bare hands. And that's when I, I totally blew them away. They got, it was 95 degrees, and they got 1,300 pictures in one week, um, 11 scrapes, I think. Nice. Yeah. So my, my point is scent is critical. And unless you're willing to take the extra step to avoid human odor being mixed, because like I said, a deer, if, if you put pre-post and forehead gland in the woods where it hasn't been before, and a deer comes in, and he smells that, that scent, even though it smells somewhat like a deer. Okay, it's not exact. He's, and he smells human odor associated with it. He's going to say, a human was here, and it's kind of odd that this stuff is associated with it. Right? Because he can separate it. When I did seminars, a guy would tell me, I use skunk piss to hide my odor, I use raccoon piss. And you know what I said to him? I said, I don't give a crap if you took a shower in raccoon piss. When you go in the woods, the deer is going to smell a raccoon and a human because he can separate you out. Wow. So there's no such thing as a cover scent, okay? There's no such thing as, as spraying a scent eliminator on you that smells like dirt. Is he still going to smell dirt in a human? Right. that make sense? It, it makes
1: sense? It makes perfect sense, and I don't think a lot of people grasp
4: that, uh, including
1: me. It's good to have a good reminder on that. So you brought, you brought, I thought of a question while you were bringing that up. Um, say you, you're setting my scrapes in July or August right now. Should you still be that careful? If the deer are not on your property yet, like say you have a property like mine where it's more of a it's more of a place where the deer go once they start getting pressured, um and they're not the bucks I hunt are not here yet. I'm am I okay for now because that is that that synthetic will keep activating.
3: I don't or, know. I can't tell you how long human scent lasts. Yeah, I can't either. But I can tell you that, you know, I don't put on my scent lock and I always wear my rubber boots, so I I I'll give you a a quick brief on my my scent elimination tactics. Okay. Number one, all my clothes, whether it's scent lock, it doesn't matter, they're all washed in baking soda. Okay? okay. I use I use one to two cups in the wash, depending on how saturated my clothes are. I do not use scent killer clothes wash or any of the chemical clothes washes that are out there. And the reason why I don't is open up the bottle and smell it. If you can smell it, a deer can smell it. Okay? So I only use baking soda because baking soda is a neutralizer. It doesn't smell like anything. So I wash my clothes in baking soda. They come out of the wash. I'm a freak enough to where I actually spray my hands with Vanishing Hunter before I pull them out of the wash, and I put them into the dryer, remove any, you know, lint or whatever, and I put a tablespoon of baking soda in the clothes dryer, okay? When they're done drying, I spray my hands. They go immediately. I have scent lock bags. My un- long underwear goes in my underwear bag my un- my you know uh layering clothes go in my layering bags, and my camo or scent lock goes in scent lock bags, okay So they all get sealed so that the air they cannot't be exposed to any air, and those bags go in my scent lock boxes, okay when I take a sh- when I'm going hunting. I don't care if I'm running late or not. I'm getting in the shower, and I'm gonna. When I get out of the shower, I wash with just a regular non-scented soap. When I get out of the shower, I dry off and I spray my entire body down with Vanishing Hunter.
4: Really?
3: I brush my teeth and my tongue with regular toothpaste, and I rinse my mouth out with Vanishing Hunter. When I drive to my location, nothing. Okay is touching those clothes until I, I get out of the car. I put down a mat and I change. I don't care if it's snowing and blizzarding. I, I put my clothes on outside of the car. And it's spraying down with Vanishing Hunter often. And I always bring vanishing in a backpack so that if my head's sweating on the way in there, I can spray my hat and my head. So this is why I've killed numerous bucks Downwind of me, I've killed coyotes. Downwind of me, ten yards away, I've killed numerous elk. I was an elk guide in Colorado for 15 years, and I called a lot of bulls directly downwind of us. And because I made these guys, I taught these guys, and made them spray themselves down, we killed many bulls downwind of us. So that's just, that's not BS. That's that's the real deal.
1: Well, you sound a lot like um, John Eberhardt with his sun control tactics as well with not being afraid to have deer downwind. I mean, even Jim Brocker, Dr. Jim Brocker, same way. Like, these guys don't worry about that because they're to the T on their sun control. Exactly. I-
3: exactly. And I, I'm not there really, like, If I'm honestly, running I'm late, late and it's deer hunting, I may, uh, I mean, in its gun season, I may jump in a tree because it's gun season, but I will never go in the woods during bow season unless I'm prepared. It's just not worth it to me.
4: Right, right. Well, I appreciate the
1: diving in the second control there. I need to get my button gear a little bit better when it comes to that stuff. Um, at least you know, for, for the for the details, As I mentioned earlier, the details kill big bucks, and and you're not skipping any, which is is a common theme across a lot of you guys who hunt and kill deer in states like Michigan. Um, so, but, but back to mock scrapes. So now we, we got our scent control. We got our, our vine or our, our, our way we're going to do this. No roundup. Um, no additional chemicals, no additional smells. Where are you putting these? And how many are you putting on a property say you have say your lease is ninety acres but let's not let's not maybe go okay let's do that maybe break it into how many per 20 acres and where are you putting them
3: so you know you can get a ton of scrape activity on field edges okay you know a buck always scrapes field edges the problem right. with that is most Big, pressured bucks will not expose themselves on field edges during daylight. Correct. Okay? So, if you want to just get some nighttime pictures and get a, what I call, um, you know, a list of the bucks that are on your property, right? You can, you can put them in common areas where, you know, they're scraping under an oak tree on a edge of a bean field. Okay, and throw a camera on it. If you want to hunt a scrape, what I like to do is I like to hunt bucks along really uncommon travel corridors from bedding to food sources. Okay. I like to put my scrapes in on the edge of a field edge, a farm field edge, 50, 75, 80 yards. Okay. Because what's going to happen typically, is I see most of my big buck activity inside of that edge during the daylight, okay? And believe me, you you don't typically see during bow season a giant buck step into a bean field till you can barely see him, right? So he has to get there, and that's why I feel if he's up on his feet and he's cruising, you know, I like to put my... My tree stands. I like to put my scrape setups where they're, you know, cruising corridors from bedding, food sources, um, where they can, you know, work upwind of of does in those areas. Right? Um, you want me to explain that further, or yeah,
1: just just, just a little bit. I mean, I, I, so I can go off of a field edge into the woods. In between bedding and food, and, and hang one up. I get that, but I don't think that's quite dialed in. I guess let's dial it in a little bit further to what you're looking for between. Say, so you know where they bed? There's a swamp.
3: Yeah, you I I'm really like funnels. If you can find a funnel, I mean, there's just a okay. lot of guys that hunt open woods, right. right? Right. So they might hunt in open woods. They don't have any funnels. They don't have any swamps. They don't have any pinch points. You know. You guys know how to create that with habitat,
4: Correct. right? All of that. But,
3: yep. But for their for certain individuals that don't have that option, and they just want to buy some pre-post rut and forehead and land and put a scrape in the woods, you know, I'm going to think about where these deer are coming from and going to. Even if it's, you know, a half a, they're coming a half a mile from a bedding area, two properties over to get to your farm field. You got to think about, you know, the fact that your chance of getting to a buck on his feet during daylight, you're not going to get it on the edge of a, on the edge of a field edge. Not typically. It happens, okay? It happens in in uh, Ohio when there's no pressure, but in Michigan, I can tell you, as soon as you get six hundred thousand hunters running into the woods, uh, after the first or second week, you you don't get much big buck activity on a, on a field edge, right? right? Right, So I try to go to pinch points, um, you know, like, like that. For example, I have that tree cutting that happened last year. I have basically two trails that converge that come off of a saddle on an oak ridge, and it is just insane, and the bucks are already tearing it up in there. Okay, I mean that I never had a stand there. I had a stand on the saddle, okay, but I didn't have it where it went down into the swamp. I'm definitely putting a stand there. I'm definitely setting up a scrape right there because I'm seeing multiple um, transitions of uh, you know deer trails coming through there that I never saw before, just because I changed the topography, right?
1: Oh, for sure. You're creating, I mean, you didn't change the topography, but you're creating structure and funnels and pitch points because of those, those that, that logging, right? Yeah, that's yeah, what I meant. It's Yeah, not the spotty. No, for it's sure, like for that sure. That I'm mean. in the same boat. I, I'm i so jacked up about how these the side cover is going to kind of push them, and you can move those tops around and kind of, you know, push these here where you want to push them. So, okay, so I got that part. Keep going.
3: And then I, the real key thing is buy yourself like a you know I I I've used covert I've used um, you know right now I'm using spy points these little right now you can get these cameras for like 99 bucks right I mean spy point has them there's a new one from Tacticam called Reveal they're they're very reasonable cameras that send you pictures I mean there's nothing that you can learn more than setting up a scrape and seeing what kind of activity you get, right? Especially when it's sending you pictures to your phone. It's the best
4: thing since sliced bread. It is.
3: It's crazy. It's crazy. I'm the first guy to tell you that every scrape I make doesn't, doesn't get turned on, okay? I mean, I might make a scrape and it doesn't hit and I walk 50 yards from there, find another spot, and it gets destroyed in one day. It's really weird why that happens. But they do work, okay? If you stick to it, you'll find that you will get a scrape and you'll just go, wow, I'm, I want to hunt over this thing every day. But you got to be smart. you gotta, you got to hunt smarter, not harder. You only hunt when, when, it's, when it's time and when you see that activity at its, at its peak. And I mentioned earlier... Right now, when you make a scrape, you make it with the forehead gland. The forehead gland you can use year-round. It used to be called deer stop. When it was when it was a hog's product, they called, it, they called it deer stop because you could spray it on a branch, and a doe would stop on it because does love licking it and smelling it, and so do bucks, okay? And at that time, it was more like... You just put this on a tree where you want a deer to stop and you kill it, right? Well, it also was effective for mock grapes. So when you put it in the tree, it, it basically works year round because all animals are attracted to it. Not just deer, but all animals. So right now, this time of year, you're using the pre post rut. If you're going to buy, you know, vanish, or I mean, uh, buck fever products, the pre post comes in a green bottle. And basically, that product says that you can use it any time of year. It can be used prior to the rut or after the rut. The only time people should buy rut and use rut is when the activity starts to, to get hot, like sometime around, you know, Halloween, a little bit before that, okay? The reason why I say that is, is all, all of our products are guaranteed not to spook Animals, okay. They're not. They're guaranteed not to spook deer. Okay. You can't say that about many scents out there. Um, and the reason being is it's a natural smell. It's a natural occurring smell. Okay. It's a biodegradable chemical that's naturally occurring in nature. Okay. When a deer smells the pre-post, he just thinks that any deer pee there could be a doe. It could be a small buck, but by putting the forehead in the tree and putting that pre-post in the ground, you're basically telling them a young buck came in here and marked this spot. Okay? Gotcha. So the next buck's going to come in there and overmark it, and then the next buck's going to do the same thing. So now they're putting their own smells in that tree and in that scrape. So they took that mock scrape over. Now, when that camera sends you a picture. Keep going. Yep. When that camera sends you a picture, and now it's not, you know, the typical, you know, year and a half old eight point and the, the five, six points that are on it, all of a sudden you see perhaps a transient deer that hit it, and he hits it again. Or you see the buck that's been on your hit list for five years, he hasn't touched that scrape once, but all of a sudden he's in it. Okay? And And he's frequenting it. That's when you need to run out there in the middle of the day and pour a half of a bottle of rut in that scrape and juice it up. Okay. Okay, that's when that product is effective. Rut is sold more than any other product that Buck Fever makes because everybody sees the name rut and they think it's, it's what they should use. It's not. You, you need to condition the deer with the other products and use the rut when you're ready to kill that buck. I didn't know that,
1: and I've been using that stuff for 8, eight, ten years now. Um, that's very yeah. interesting. So when do you hang your cell cameras on scrapes, or are they always on scrapes?
3: I, I have cell cameras that are on food plots, and then I have cell cameras specifically for scrapes. I would say 8 out of 10 cameras okay, 80% of my cameras are on scrapes.
1: And are all those at stand locations as well?
3: Um, not specifically. So okay. yesterday I set up six scrapes. Um, I'm getting pictures on all of them, but I'm not going to set my stand until I see this is a new piece of property I just got. Nice. And I'm not going to set my stand until I figure out the best scrape or stand. Oh, okay. Right.
1: Back to being mobile and adjusting and, and being able to strike at the right time. I love that. Um, exactly. I don't think we answered yet.
3: Uh, I, I do have one one other trick, okay? Yeah. Most of us hunt multiple properties. Right. Okay? When I told you about the hierarchy, if, if I know all the deer that are on a property and they're hammering a, a scrape, what happens when... I have another scrape on another piece of property where I have a branch getting hammered, okay? And let's say those properties are 10, 15 miles apart. What I do is I cut a branch from the opposing properties and I swap them up. No way. Okay, what did I just do? I just freaked them out because now they're smelling bucks they've never smelled before.
1: And this doesn't screw it up at all?
3: No, I've I've had I've had um, where I had less mature deer, okay, um, go into an area, and I put that and I did have less activity on it, okay. But what's funny is I kept the camera on it, and I had a giant buck visiting it in December, and he kept wow. hitting it in December. So what had happened is he moved in and said. I don't know who these other guys are, but I'm going to I'm gonna hit this scrape. On the other hand, I've done that when I've had a dominant buck working a scrape, but he wasn't coming in during the daylight. I clipped a branch from the other spot, put it on there, and again, he didn't leave the scrape. And what was weird is when I did that, I had multiple does that would bed around that scrape. I haven't figured that out yet. I just think... What the only thing I can think of is that they smelled other bucks that they've never smelled, smelled before, and they wanted to be bred with new stock. Hmm. That's my only only thing I can think of.
1: Yeah, you're getting up past my pay grade there, Jim. I can't I can't help you with that one.
3: <laughs> just just because does want to breed the most mature buck there is for sure, and does also don't want to breed the same deer. The same bucks. They actually know that interbreeding could hurt hurt the herd, right? So, I want to say that that might be one of the reasons. Like, every time I went to that stand, I was jumping three, four does that were bedded all around that scrape. It was weird. Uh, It was crazy. So, you know, doing, you know, using scrapes, I'm still learning different things that happen, but that is a tactic that can be used. Um, Dylan Smith from Kansas turned me on to that. He kills giant bucks every year by doing that.
1: I've never heard of that. That's that's awesome.
3: Yeah. He takes, you, you got to make sure when you clip the brand. You got to
1: be sent free. Yeah, you can't be messing around
3: be sent with that You got to put it in a garbage bag, right, and then pull it out. You know, don't throw it in your, the back of your truck with, you know, your chainsaw. We right. You got to be smart about it.
4: Right.
3: Dang,
1: that's super interesting. Um, I've been hanging out with you for a long time and I haven't heard like half this stuff. So <laughs> this is this is pretty awesome to get to be able to pull I'm it out of you to right get here. All
3: in at once, we could talk all night, right? Well, I, I the only other thing I wanted to hit on
1: that was um, say you're you're on 20 acres. Say okay, say so I have 15 acres, which I do. Um. Uh, I have a, a big swamp out back where they all bed off my ground. Then you work into this eight acres of freshly logged shit show type timber that we talked about. It's a mess, which I'm in love with. And then you get to my food, and then they move on to the neighbors and the neighbors, and then the big corn fields and, and bean fields. How many how many mass are you laying down on? On a, a property that I that I kind of described to you, Just, does it go by the destination plot? Does it go by the location, or are you like twelve to twenty or no you, you
3: don't want to put a lot of scrapes down.
4: You right? don't want to. You,
3: you you want to put you know one or two like on that property where you know you're, you're talking a minimal amount of area that you're actually hunting. You know I would only I would start out with one scrape where you're going to be hunting you know, near where you're, and see what happens with it. If okay. it doesn't take off, move it, you know, like I said, move 50 yards and, and try it there. But you don't want to have bucks hitting, um, you know, 20 scrapes on 20 acres. They're not, they're not going to do that, most likely. What I will do is, I, like, on a food plot, I learned this from the Doherty brothers, right, way back. They made their food plots in L's, right? Or, or like a kidney shape, so when a buck enters a food plot, he can't see around the corner, right? Right, 100%. So you, you guys have used that tactic before, Correct. right?
1: Correct, Definitely. Right. Yeah.
3: So what, what I'll do is I'll put a scrape on both ends so that that buck hits that scrape, and, of course, he's going to want to hit the other scrape, right? Yeah. So if he comes out on the one, he's going to hit that scrape, walk down the edge, hopefully fire your stand on his way to hit this other scrape, right? So I will put um, scrapes on edges of food plots and put multiple scrapes. So if he's coming in on one end and he can't see the other end, he wants to go there. You know what I mean? Definitely.
1: Would you suggest putting one in the narrow portion or the pinched-down portion of the kidney?
3: Absolutely. Yes.
1: Why not? Right. It's at, it's yeah, at that you, would be the sweet place. Right. Whatever. Right.
3: Yeah. Okay. And yeah. and again, you know, I can't see where the best place is for you to put your stands, right? I mean, you know, my biggest problem is I'm I'm picky about what trees I put my stands in, and sometimes I don't have a scrape. I find the perfect tree, in the per- perfect corridor, and then I don't have a tree that I can make a scrape in right? Yeah. So you can do all kinds of things. You can use like a trapper's stake to pull a branch down, you know, hook a branch that's way up high, pull it down with um, like parachute cord, and, and make the scrape off a branch that would be way too high typically, right? So you have to be prepared like with um, an extended saw or something where you can pull a branch down and then have some parachute cord or something to tie tie it back down to, so that you, you could create a scrape in an area where you've got a great tree, but you don't have a scrape tree, right? A great tree stand tree, but no no scrape trees near near it.
1: No, you're you're 100% right. And, and actually, I saw something similar over on Brian's farm in Ohio. Brian, how did you end up working? That, those my scrapes you put up on your 40 I, it was something pretty pretty unique I
4: thought
2: yeah I mean uh, I just put them out where the deer like to be to begin with and uh when there's there's no trees and no branches to make a scrape you can just run a rope or a wire or whatever you have handy across the uh, corridor there between two trees and Pretty much hanging anywhere you want down off of that. Once you got the the support wire up above the cord, that's a great idea.
3: That's a that's a great idea. i never even thought about that myself. That's that's a great idea. As long as you have that that grapevine dangling straight down from that rope, they're going to hit it.
4: Absolutely.
3: Wow, and they, good idea. And they,
4: they
1: did right. You had that that little drop time, Buck. He was down there hitting that thing.
2: Oh yeah, I probably put. Maybe six of them throughout my 40 in the different corridors, and they hit every one of them. As many mock scrapes as I've made over the years, I've probably had about 50% success with them until I started using those vines, and just unbelievable.
3: Uh, Yeah, the vines are a a big hit, that's for sure. And I think you also touched on something there,
1: Brian, which we should probably mention, which is uh, putting them in the deer's nose, like putting them... Putting them where the deer, like you said, where the deer are already traveling, it gives you a better chance, I think, than putting them like off the beaten path. Jim, have you seen anything like that?
3: There's no doubt you're going to get more activity on the, if you put them in the high traffic corridors. What where I find I do the best with bigger bucks is not in high traffic corridors. Okay, I really? mean only here's my point. When when it's an easy access, a, a lot of bucks don't take the same runs that does take. Okay, sure. they they'll Make travel choice. in parallel with a heavily trailed, uh, a heavily run trail. Um, they will, you know, work the edge of a field and come in basically anywhere. I mean, I've seen bucks walk through the Thickest, nastiest stuff when there was just a perfect open trail, right? To come out into a, a field. So I, I guess where, where I'm going is if I'm going to try to kill a specific buck, I don't typically put it on a trail that every other deer is, is, is working. Interesting. If if you want to get high active scrapes, absolutely put them on there where you're going you're going to get a catalog of your deer. Absolutely.
4: So,
2: Jim, before we move on, do you have any good stories that stick out in your mind where you went out and put some of these mock scrapes in and started having dynamite activity that ended up in the successful hunt for you?
3: Yeah, yeah let, let, let's Talk hear about,
2: about
1: a butt about
3: kill, it. Jim. What's that? Let's hear about a
1: nice butt kill from one of these scrapes.
3: You know, it, it's not always about me. Uh, I would I would like to tell you the story that makes me sick. How's that sound? So <laughs> basically when I first bought Buck Fever, okay, so that was two thousand and nine, I was in this building and I was also I had smart scouter cameras. I, I talked about this earlier. And um my buddy who basically doesn't do anything on the property but show up, right? He, I was so busy filling orders. This was like October 28th or something. I was so busy filling these orders that I couldn't hunt. I mean, for like seven straight days, it was killing me, and I kept getting, you know, pictures of good bucks. Well, it was like a, a Friday afternoon. My buddy's a doctor, and I didn't think he was going to come out or anything, and um, I got a picture of a brand new buck, a beautiful ten point, 135 inch buck that showed up on the scrape like mid morning. So I literally left the shop and ran and put that put the juice in the scrape, and I came back and I was going to hunt that night. I had all my stuff with me. Well, my buddy calls me about 3:30. And he's like, I'm on my way to Al's. He's like, oh, you know, where should I hunt? And I'm looking, and the 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 post the what do you call it? The UPS guy didn't show up, and I had all these orders to go out. And I'm like, you know, I just told him. I said, well, I've got a buck hunt, you know, working the stand at the point of the uh, at the, we we call it the point in the field. And he got in the stand, so. <laughs> He calls me, it's dark, right, I'm still working, and, and I'm like, what's up? And he goes, uh, I'm going to swing by, right? And as soon as he said that, I knew it. Basically, uh, I set that scrape up for him, and he killed, you know, that buck, right? So that one sticks in my head more than anything, because if I had just said screw the company and went in that tree, I probably would have killed that buck, right? Instead, he's got... That's the biggest buck he's killed to date on the property. So, Man. No, there, that's the best the... I can do, I guess.
1: I like it. I like it. I mean, you've, you've killed plenty of nice I've Michigan. killed plenty yeah. of bucks on scrapes. Yeah, that's true. Like um, that one you killed last year was super nice for, for Michigan. Was it like 10 or 11, 12 points, something like that? He was
3: a, he was a 12. He's, I'm looking at him right now because I got him back. Very heavy. I mean, massive, massive bases. Um, and he was five and a half. And my taxidermist said he was just tore up. I mean, like, he did, he was doing a lot of fighting. And, um, you know, so he was the Mac Daddy. I had him on the scrape, uh, four times prior to shooting him. I, I think I shot him on either the 22nd or the 25th. I can't remember. Um, on a Sunday morning, I rode my quiet cat in there. And, uh, typically we don't hunt that property in the morning, but it just, it felt good, and I took the long way in, and, uh, he came into the scrape, he was coming into the scrape, like, before light, and I was, like, hoping that I could get a crack at him, like, as it cracked, and sure as shit, he came in, like, and I couldn't see my peep sight, couldn't see my pen. So I actually let him walk. I mean, I could see his outline. I could kind of get him, but I did not want to wound that deer. as He was just too big. So he walked off, and um I was watching him and just praying for the light to come. I had my grunt call, and all of a sudden I looked down, and I've got four does underneath me because I'm hunting um in an oak tree, and there are acorns all over the ground. So... So basically now I've got four eyes on me, and this buck's walking away. And so I waited as long as I could um, to to be patient watching these does so I could get my grunt call out and hope I didn't spook him. And I hit my grunt, and it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. He He turned and looked and walked sideways. I've never seen a deer do that. So he was basically walking, looking at me, like with his head turned. I can't even explain what it was like, but it was. And he, he puffed his chest out. He came around the does. Now the does were kind of like spooked in a way because I, I'm right on top of them and I grunted. Once they started relaxing, he made his way around, and now I had five sets of eyes on me and I had to pull the shot off. And luckily,. Um, the dough underneath me, when I drew my bow back, she started bounding and he turned and looked at her. And all I could see was my pin on his chest, and I ended up hammering him. So it was, uh, I think I was really lucky that I got all that to come together because typically I would have been, I would have spooked him or whatever, right? But things worked out for the best on that one.
1: Oh, man. And that's a hammer of a deer. What did he ended up scoring?
3: He's 153, mostly <laughs> nice. tons, of, tons of mass measurements. Um, he was In two Michigan. 215 dressed. So nice. yeah. Congrats. Thanks. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, he's he's an old buck. We'll probably have to use that picture for um, for this podcast thumbnail, if you don't mind, just yeah, because that was a cool absolutely. story. Yeah. Well, Jim, we've had you on here, taking up a lot of time from your night. Really appreciate you coming on. Um, is there anything else you want to hit before I ask you our our last question of the night?
3: Um, you know, I hope I didn't bore anybody, um, put anybody to sleep. I I just I can talk about this stuff all night long because I have a a real passion for deer hunting. Um, I have a passion for learning about Dear, i learned something i'm 55 just turned 55 and i still learn something every time i'm in the woods so um i hope i didn't bore you with all my stories and what i've learned
1: (laughs) absolutely not that was great i'll tell you what jim i wouldn't ask you to come on if i thought this was going to be a boring conversation i i've been talking to you for a long time i respect you highly and I think you, you, the proof is in the pudding when it comes to deer on your wall. So I just, I love it. Thanks for coming on. I, I have one last question for you. No problem. We'd like to wrap this up with um, a very exciting question about a tree. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. I want to hear what your favorite tree is. It could be... One you like turning into your bar room table in the basement. It could be the one you like killing deer out of. It could be the one you like planting for your habitat. Just you'd be surprised about the cool answers we've gotten out of this question over the past my year favorite or so, so. tree. Yeah, like type of tree or specific tree. Really open
3: question. Not not tree stand setup, but a tree.
1: Sure, go ahead. Tree stand setup
3: up. like I said. Uh, it's very open. I, I can tell you. I mean, as far when I'm looking for trees to set my standard. Usually I'm looking for oaks that are going to hold their leaves for a long time, Mm -hmm. or I look for multiple trees growing together. Mm -hmm. You know, the biggest thing with me is cover. I used to hunt at 25 to 30 feet. I'm 55 now. And now I'm finding myself wanting to hunt, you know, from 20 to 25. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, no more than that. And, in Michigan, especially, like in in Ohio, I can do jumping jacks in a ladder stand, and they don't know what's going on.
4: <laughs> but in Michigan,
3: uh, you know, if I'm not, you know, 25 feet up w- with full concealment around me, um, you know, you're going to get busted. So that's my favorite tree is, is something that's going to hold its leaves for the longest period of time or where I can, I can be – you know, it has some cover around me being up 20, 25 feet, you know what I mean?
1: Definitely, definitely, I don't, I don't know if, uh, everybody really grasps how, how crazy our deer are here, um, I know I've talked about it, probably, till you can get long in the tooth or whatever, but they're nuts, they're, they're, they're schizo here, they're on edge, they're insane, so that makes perfect sense, um. Yeah, I used to tell people you this say
3: when you have a two year old buck in Iowa or, you know, Ohio or less pressured states, they're a mere child. Okay? they they really don't have a clue. Our two year old bucks in Michigan are college educated. I right? would agree. I would agree. I mean, they they just they're aware. I mean, they're looking up all the time, and um, it wasn't until I started hunting high where I wasn't getting busted. You know, I mean, I'm not talking scent busted, but, you know, I, I like to say I effed, right? Yep. <laughs> where they, Where they just, like, they can see it from a mile away, so...
1: Well, awesome, man. That that'll work. Uh, the oak tree is one of the most popular, probably the most popular answer. Everybody loves a, an oak that holds its cover. So, and and the multi limb tree is another great idea. I have a spot on my property that's like a five-trunk uh, soft maple, where Perfect. I kind of get in the middle of that and kind of hang out. And it, it might block a, a shooting lane if you if you were at full draw, but I'll trade that for the cover, and I'll I'll figure out a way to shoot that deer anyway. So, great point. For sure. Especially from a saddle. Well, you have exactly. a lot of options with a saddle, right? Exactly, exactly. Amen. Jim, thanks so much for coming on. If the listeners want to check you out or get a hold of you or, or uh, you know, just help support you, where, where can they go? Uh,
3: you know, I just, right now, I'm, uh, you know, on Facebook and uh, I do some consulting for Buck Fever. I, you know, I, I basically sold that company to some guys from New York. And um, I have little involvement, but uh, I do my best to help them out. So, yeah, my Facebook page, you can look me up there. Um, That's really the best place that uh, you can find me. Use my phone number.
1: Awesome, man. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. It was an excellent chat with you. Always good catching up, and uh, I wish you luck this season.
3: My pleasure. I appreciate meeting both of you and uh, talking to you about this. And uh, good luck to you guys. I can't wait till we can exchange some photos.
1: I
4: can. Thanks, Jim. You too. Take care.
1: All right, Jim, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We really had a great time talking with you. And just, I'm going to listen to this episode two or three more times before season starts and see if I can't, you know increase some activity by some mature bucks on my property trying out a couple of your tactics. Um, I've been using that buck fever for a long time and that stuff doesn't lie. So thanks for coming on. Listeners, thank you guys once and forever for coming on and listening to us once again. We really love doing this and the support we get from you and the feedback we get from you, whether it's a good review on iTunes or Facebook or anywhere else, really keeps us going and, and pumping along. We got a bunch of Video stuff coming up, a bunch of cool hunts planned this fall, and I want to hear from you guys. If you guys are putting something into, you know, if you're implementing something on your property that you heard from us and it's working, let's hear about it. Let's talk. Let's talk about it. Maybe get you on the episode. Uh, maybe a game plan episode if you're successful. I got a bunch of those hopefully coming up with people, you know, killing these nice bucks. So we're gonna get you on here and and uh, learn from you and what's working in your area. So thanks to listeners. Just let us know what successes you're having or what failures. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Thank you, sponsors, Packer Max Cult Packers, Hunt Wise, Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, Stony Creek Realty, and Sound Barrier Hunting. Guys, we have discount codes, uh, Packer Max. Uh, You get $25 off using the code HPC. Killer Food Plots, 10% off and free shipping if you use the code HP10%. Uh, Let's see what else we got here. Sound Barrier Hunting, use the code HP and you get free shipping and 10% off as well on all their Buck Bumper products. I've been putting that to use on my climbing sticks and uh, tree stands here this week. So if you haven't heard about Habitat Podcast before and you want to find out more about us, all you have to do is go to HabitatPodcast.com. Everything's up there. Check it out. Hope to see you next week. We have some more great episodes coming. Thanks for tuning in once again as we become Better Habitat managers.
0: Experience brought to you by Golden Boat Lift every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. (laughs) Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors every Monday night from 7 to
4: 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.